With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Richie. Beyond Walker. Q. Q. That'll do it. That will do it. Q for Bournemouth. Good morning and welcome to episode 84 of Back of the Net, the AFC Bournemouth podcast. My name is Sam Davis and I hope you're doing well. It's still very strange out there. We're supposed to be locked down, but people are going to B&Q to make these essential journeys to buy a parasol. Uh, It's all a bit strange and the lack of football is really not helping. Everyone copes better with some kind of structure and without the football to go to every week and seeing our friends. It is really hard, but... Of course, people's health has got to take priority. The Premier League are talking about restarting, hashtag project restart. And it seems crazy, Uh, neutral venues. We're going to tackle that on a future pod because I do believe that there are going to be weeks and weeks before there is any kind of resumption. So there's time to tackle it. But yeah, all a bit strange. The football chat, though, still continues. And on this podcast, we're going to bring together four audio excerpts of some of the longer form YouTube stuff that we've done recently. So if you haven't subscribed to YouTube, I advise you do it because we're doing these regular Sunday night chats and we'll often throw in a cheeky midweeker too. So we managed to chat to Captain Fantastic Tommy Elphick. We had him for over an hour and he was really candid. If you get the chance, go to YouTube, youtube.com slash AFCB podcast or just search Back of the Net Bournemouth or something like that and you should be able to find us there. Click the videos tab and go back through some really interesting insights. Plus, we chatted to Marvin Bartley. The audio that night wasn't too good because he was on an iPhone and his mic was picking up his speakers. It was all a bit weird, but we did manage to get some great nuggets from him. So we'll have a short bit of that. And plus, Trevor Watkins, chairman of AFC Bournemouth in the late 90s. Do you remember when he took over the Winter Gardens, becoming a community club and then... It was Wembley and then the building of the new stadium too. We caught up with him plus the AFC Bournemouth legend, probably one of the standout performers for AFC Bournemouth over the last decade. It was Mark Pugh and he joined myself and Alex Deutsch. So we've got some audio there too. Now this podcast is sponsored by Living Home Tech. It's a company that provides themselves on helping to make this isolation a little bit more manageable with their technology solutions. 
Spending more time at home makes you realise just how much we all need reliable technology for entertainment, video conferencing, gaming and more. And Living Home Tech are professionals in the design and installation of cinemas, networks, lighting and security systems and much more for your home. And it works every time in the look and the feel and the sound. Well, it's just perfect. Experience Living Home Tech. That's at livinghometech.co.uk. And in fact, I've got to say, I, I wish I had one of their room-in-a-room cinemas in this lockdown because what they do is they, they convert any spare room in your house, reskin it, and they can add a cinema or media room. And especially when AFCB TV were doing the Charlton rerun the other day, it would have been so good to sit back and watch that trophy relift in style. As it was, I was hunched over my laptop. But yeah, fantastic to talk to Tommy Elphick. And he spoke with... The crew on a Sunday night live chat and some of the stories he was coming out with. Just genius. So, Tommy, we're absolutely delighted to have you here. How are you? Yeah, very well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem at all. How are you coping with the lockdown and everything that's been going on recently? Yeah, same as everyone, really. It's tough, um, but I've got a two-year-old and a, a three-month-old keeping me busy. Um and I'm, I'm out of a serious injury at the moment, so managing managing to to get through my rehab fine at the moment at home, um, but but missing the everyday action of being in like everyone is in every walk of life. So uh, strange, strange times, but I'm I'm doing all right. So Tommy, um, most football fans will be aware that you joined us in 2012, but before that, you came up through the ranks at Brighton and. Uh, you forged a successful path with them. Um, you got promoted to the championship with them, but you know you got injury struck at at one point, and then you were playing a pre-season friendly for Brighton in the 2012 season. Then, in the flash of an eye, you signed for Bournemouth. Um, how on earth did that come about? Yeah, so obviously come through the youth team at Brighton um, was was uh, great memories and great times. Um, and uh, the season we got promoted to um, the championship on the last day of the season, I ruptured my Achilles. Um, and I think game to game, I was out about 16 months. Um, and obviously, it's a, a long time to be out and, and missed a lot of football. Um, and then one pre-season, I'd come back. And the idea was to to go out on loan. Um, Gus Poirier was the manager at, at the time where I got on with Famous and uh, like holding such high regard and it was a really exciting time to be at Brighton. Um, and I had the options of, I had about six different options to go on loan back to League One um, to get playing. The idea was to go, you could still do like a three month loan at that time to, to go for three months, um, come back and try and get back in the Brighton team, leading up until Christmas. And then if that didn't work on, then it was probably time to move on um, and sort of rattled it down to three clubs. I think it was Bournemouth, uh, Coventry, who, who had just come down to League One, and MK Dons, who were sort of just coming coming through the leagues. Um, and Bournemouth was the first club that I went to, and my agent was responsible for um, bringing Charlie Daniels to the club as well. Mm. Um, so I had a bit of a connection with the club, and he said it would be a good idea to go and visit Bournemouth first. Uh, went down, met Paul Groves, was impressed by what I'd seen. I'd obviously taken a bit of an interest uh, in the club when Cookie had moved to, to see how he, he was doing. Um, sat down with Paul Groves and, and drove away and I thought it just might be time for a change. Um, so again, spoke to Brighton. They was open to the idea that I had a price tag. Uh, Bournemouth met it and the rest is history, as they say. It was all a bit acrimonious, wasn't it, with the, the ending of Paul Groves and uh, the Sean Brooks era because uh, they didn't last too long and it, it did end fairly badly, as I recall. How was it yeah. as a player? Yeah, I mean, uh, two two really great guys, uh, two really good coaches, but uh, I sensed very quickly that, um, I wouldn't say it was a bad feeling there, but it was a bit fragmented. Um, the attendances were low for the start of this season and uh, it, it was a very, very strange time. Everyone knows what the chairman, Eddie Mitchell at the time, was was quite vocal and like I, I was never, never used to anything like this. And he was turning up in the dressing room and, and giving this team talk at the stage. And I think, mean, what is going on here? And about three or four weeks in, I remember ringing my dad and saying, I think we've we've had a bit of a boo-boo here. I think we've made a bad mistake. We're in a bit of trouble. Um, and it wasn't through the bad work of Paul and, and Sean. They were good coaches and, and good guys, as I said. And we had a very, very talented squad. 
but things were fractious and, and pretty fragmented and it needed bringing together. Um, obviously, you never want to see anyone lose their jobs, but um, we found out quickly that Eddie was, was interested in coming back and uh, just remember that the, the sort of um, the feeling around the club changing overnight. Um, so it obviously led to, to a, a great rise and obviously, as I said, never want to see anyone lose their job, but... Mm. With, with the opportunity of Eddie coming back, it, it was it was it was an amazing time to then be at the club. Yeah, Tom Jordan, you'll I mean you'll know what the fans' reaction to uh, Paul Groves was, and it it wasn't particularly great, was it? No, it was a difficult one because I think Tommy will probably you know agree with me here that we had a good group of players, which obviously it proved in the end, and I think that was probably the main thing is we felt we had a really good squad there some good talented players and just weren't getting the best out of them. And um, like I say, may, maybe it just needed bringing together a little bit. And that's what Eddie managed to do. Because it seemed like a, a really good, talented group of players for that level. And it just, for, for one reason or another, it wasn't clicking. And like you say, there were things behind the scenes and Eddie Mitchell, etc. And it just, it was bizarre at the time because you just felt like it only needed a little tweak to really kick on. Mm, yeah, that's that's right. I mean, do you think that, uh, Tommy, that the stick they got um, from the fans, at least, was perhaps unjustified, given that between Brooks and Lee Bradbury, they, you know, they signed our back four. They signed yourself, Charlie Daniels, Steve Cook and Simon Francis. So, you know, yeah. you could argue that their transfer decisions weren't bad. No, um, they laid down some pretty solid foundations, didn't they? And, and I remember Lee Bradbury um, losing his job and, and a lot of lads were still sort of um, caught up on that. Obviously, I've, I'd never met Lee or, or, or worked under Lee, but a lot of lads were quite fond of Lee. Um, just the way it had come about. And I don't know, there was, there was two, if, if Paul and Sean had been given full reign, I, I think, and, and been able to manage the club and, and, and coach the lads the way they wanted to, I think they would have done a little bit better than what they had. Um, and listen, an owner puts their money in and, and, and invests in a squad. They can do what they want at the end of the day. It's their football club. Um, but I felt Sean and Paul had their hands tied a little bit. They was kicking it uphill, I think, under the circumstances that they took over. But I think, like you've just alluded to there, the foundations that they laid with, with some of the signings and even previous to that, Lee Bradbury, the, the club do owe them something. And, 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 and you know, they, they set up a, a talented squad for Eddie to come in and, and, and mould his way. Yeah. And what were your first impressions of Eddie and how quickly did, did you actually feel his impact? Yeah, I mean, uh, between Paul and, and, and Sean getting sacked, I think we had uh, we played late in Orient, didn't we? Um, we had probably a week, maybe a little bit longer, leading into that game, and there was a few rumours. And there was lads like Fletch was obviously still in the dressing room, Richard Hughes, uh, Josh McCoy, who had, who had known Eddie and worked with Eddie so for, for for the period that he had left before um, before he went to Burnley. Um, and someone like Hughes, when Hughes speaks, you listen. And he was very, very excited about what was to come um, and the visions that Eddie would have had. So we always desperate to get it done. It was some one day it would look like it was getting done, the next day it wouldn't. Uh, Hughesy was trying to keep us posted as much as he could, but I think the feeling that we got when um, when they got announced on the pitch at halftime at Leighton Orient, like we could all feel that energy coming from the fans. Um, and just from like his first meeting, you just knew he was going with a plan. This is the way it was going to be. Uh, you're either on board or you're not. Um, I remember he, he used to take us on a, on a Monday after a, a Saturday game for a warm down. He used to take us down to the beach every now and then for, for a sort of warm down. Mm. Um, so that was the first thing he'd done. We, we, we come in, we went for a walk down the beach and he just sort of started picking everyone's brains and getting to know everyone that way. It was quite relaxed and casual, which was genius in itself. Um, went back to the training ground and give us a presentation on what we expected, code of conduct, how he works. Um, and then that evening we got a text, I think it was from the physio at the time, saying, can everyone bring £20 in tomorrow? So you had the lads, everyone brought £20 in, was like, what's this for? Um, and we, had, we had a tournament, four teams, £20 each, Kevin Bond come in to watch the session. And uh, it was just uh, uh, everyone play each other, round robin. Um, and the the pot goes to the winning team mm. and it straight away just got you in that mentality of wanting to win and just layered it day on day. Um, and, and it was just a, a pleasure and, and I'm sure you'll, you'll agree. It was, it was a, a joy to watch. 
Mm. I mean, as soon as Eddie got a grasp on the squad, it seemed that everyone seemed to galvanise really quickly. But I mean, mm. at what point did you maybe feel as though you were onto something special in League One with Eddie? Um, I don't know. It's, it's hard to tell because when you're in it, you just you know, you're, you're tipping away and you just sort of you're on to the next one all the time. You never really stop and, and reflect. And this period now, it's kind of weird because you're doing a lot of reflecting because there's not a lot else you can do. Um, but I don't know, just week on week, things grew. Um, we went on a mad run. I think we were unbeaten in about 17 and we'd, we'd got to sort of the playoffs. And I suppose the time where I really thought he was a top, top manager was that league one when I think we went five, we lost five on the bounce. And just nothing changed. Like his demeanour, his personality, the way we worked, just worked a little bit harder, uh, analysed a little bit harder. Um, and just, I've been in that situation before and managed to panic and you start mm. crisis meetings. And at that stage, I was captain. So it was just such an easy lead to follow. And um, probably it, looking back, that, that was the first time I thought, yeah, this, this fellow's got it all. Yeah, I mean, just before I throw to Jeff, he's going to ask you about um, an incident at MK Dons, which uh, he's very interested in. Um, we've had a couple of people ask about Eddie's training techniques. So we had one from Brian Churchill, who asked um, how Eddie's training sessions differ from other managers, but also Smithy as well submitted a question saying, which players usually came out on top in pre-season fitness tests and uh, did any hate said tests? <laughs> I, I hated them, that's for sure. <laughs> Um, I was always the one trying to jump the gun and improve my time and score. But um, I, you don't appreciate, and I always say this to the lads that are still there that I'd speak to, you don't appreciate how good his training is until you haven't got it anymore. Um, and that's one of the biggest, that's the biggest thing I've struggled with since I've left is just not getting what I feel is needed and what the standard would be. And I can't hide but show my feelings when it's not when I'm not getting it you know um there's just method to all the madness um it's different every day it's all geared up towards a Saturday it's all geared up to how uh we was going to be at our strongest um and then he would drip feed in the next opponent's strengths um just to make you sort of aware of them there was just no stone on like left unturned and he controlled absolutely everything. There was no, um, I wouldn't say responsibility, like JT was massive for the set pieces and would, would take the back four quite a bit, but always under Eddie's eye. Um, even like I remember times when Eddie would be like really sh like ill or couldn't come to training, which was like probably once in four years. Um, and we had cameras around the training ground and he would be watching on the cameras and then all of a sudden you'd just see him crouching down in the corner because he just couldn't stay away. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's always thinking um, his analysis was spot on. You'd always have to be geared up and you'd have, you'd have made sure that you'd have watched the game back or, or, or training back before the next day because you knew you was getting asked questions about it as well. So he just had you in tune. Yeah, special, special manager. Mm. Yeah. There was a, so there was an incident in February uh, of that season where we won 3-0 at MK Dons. It was a, a routine win. Um, yeah. But Tommy Heffernan's Poodle asks, what did you do or say to Ryan Lowe that made Lowe want to kill you? I'm not really sure, to be honest. Um, I think <laughs> he was probably playing for well. Um yeah, I don't really know. He, he was. I remember him getting quite personal with Cookie over a few things that were going off the field at, at the time. And I sort of, he, he was a bit, he's an old school pro and someone I'd played against a few times. And I just said to him, you know, you bang out of order what you just said. And it got a little bit heated at one stage, but then I never sort of saw anything like that coming. But to be fair to him, um, his manager rung me that evening. He rung me a few days later just to apologise and just say, um, it just all got on top of him and he'd been a bit sort of stressed and there was things going on with, with his life and he'd lost the head for a little bit. So, as I say, he was quite old school like that and I don't think he'd meant to hurt me. You know, he maybe had a little bit of moment of madness, but I've just yeah. suffered another sort of long-term injury where I got done in a similar sort of situation and that lad didn't ring me, so... How long did that put you out for, that, uh, you know, what happened? 
Um, it wasn't actually that long because yeah. it was strange actually. This season, I went to see the same surgeon that I went to see then, and we we'd had a bit of a sort of joke about it because we saw the scans back from there. But I think it was about six or seven weeks. Yeah. Um, it was on the back of we we lost five on the bounce, and then sort of it was on the back of that I'd come back and we'd won sort of I think we went to Oldham away. I was like, yeah. Um, because I, because I say that because old school on um on Twitter on one of the forums actually said you know how satisfying was it to come back you know from that kind of injury and then continue to be part of our success just drop straight back in. Yeah, I mean, listen, I got, I, I I really did get away with like not getting badly injured. It it was um just it was bone bruising, which um it sounds a bit worse than what it was. Do you know what I mean? So uh, once I found that out, it was. The, the, the big satisfaction in coming back from these big injuries, like when I got injured at Brighton, Rutgers, the Achilles or whatever, and, and dropped down to Bournemouth to try and get back to the level, like a feeling of coming back from an injury like that is a lot greater. And obviously we've seen a lot of success stories at Bournemouth recently with the likes of Wills and, and, and Frano, um, Max Grade or Tyrone Mings, you know. Mm. So when you come back from them serious, serious injuries, they're the ones that you take a lot of pride in. So if you want to listen to more of the Tommy Elphick chat or watch more to the point, you can go to youtube.com slash AFCB podcast. It's also on our Facebook as, as well. I, I do neglect Facebook. Um, so search Back of the Net, Bournemouth on Facebook or go to facebook.com slash AFCB podcast and you can watch it there. There are also cheeky sites where you can turn it into an audio file as well, but I, I won't talk about them. Um, right then, next up, Marvin Bartley, um, he went through a few highs and a few lows with AC Bournemouth. When he joined, we got relegated, but then it was minus 17 and then the subsequent promotion. In fact, he was one of the players at that Burton match and he realised the potential that the Cherries had. But first, I asked him, do you remember that 5-0 at Morecambe? Yeah, I do. I asked him what on earth it was like playing for Eddie Howe in games like that. Oh, don't let me... Uh, the, the schoolboy look for you. Uh, you. You cross Eddie, you definitely, definitely know about it. Yeah. Um, I think that's the best thing about him is that people do see him and say, oh, look at this like, cute, young-looking man. In that dressing room, if you, if you fail to do your job or if you, you let the team down or yourself down or, or him down or, or whatever, he will let you know about it. And, um, you know, there's a few times he, he read the Rollicking Act to us and, you know, when you first see him do it, you're like, wow, like he's changed into, who is this man that's in front of me? You know, where's this calm man gone? But he knew to do it at the right time. You know, he, he wouldn't come in all the time and roll you uh, for mistakes. He would try and coach you and make you better. But if he told you, you know, two or three times, then he would get frustrated and then he would, he would definitely lose it. The Morecambe one, I remember that. That's the game I got sent off, I think. Yeah. Um, it was, I remember starting the game and they scored and I was like, because we were confident going to this game. I was like, oh, okay, we'll get back into it. And I think they scored again. I was like, what's mm. going on here? Like, we're in real trouble here. I remember going in for a tackle. And as I was going in for the tackle, probably about a second before I touched the guy, I was like, you're getting sent off here. You're, you're far too late. And it was just me trying to put my stamp on the game and try and wrestle back control of the game. And what made this even worse is that we had our Christmas party uh, in Manchester booked for after this game. So I get sent off and I'm going to change it and I'm thinking, oh, you couldn't have picked a worse time. I get sent off. I was like, honestly, you do pick your moments. I was sitting in the dressing room and this is the God's on the shoot. I was sitting in there thinking, you're not going to be allowed out now. Almost like Eddie was my dad. I was like, you're not going to be allowed out, mate. I remember we played the game, we got absolutely battered. And, you know, you and the younger boys were like, right, we're not going on the Christmas trip. Because what was due to happen was that the club drop us into Manchester on the way back to Bournemouth. And Eddie and the manager team to sit at the front. And in this day, they said, it wasn't a side, you know, door to get out. So you'd have to walk past it. Mm. So I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I've got my fancy dress costume on the back of the bus. I would have to walk past him. We've just been battered, I think, was it 5-1 or something, or 5-0. Yeah. Um, I, I can't do this. The older boys were like, no, you're going. Like, so us young boys, learn every single one of you getting off the bus. So it's not the game of... <laughs> Like in the chair, like, wow. Get on the coach, and Eddie's red face. He's been through us. He's been through me for getting sent off, and you know, being stupid. Get on the bus, and, and they say to the driver, "I right, take us to, to Manchester." And I'm like, 
in the hellboy you can't do this anyway the bus stops at manchester and i'll never forget it i tried to like slide down in my seat and let the boys walk past me and to me, they all went past me except for Ron Cummins. and he's like what are you doing i was like oh. <laughs> so i picked up my banking purse and, and and my, my overnight bag and i've had to walk past them i remember i went past eddie and you know, the lads are walking past and saying goodbye, and, and he was literally like this, staring out the window. Wow. And he pays us. And like, I, I look back at it now, and if I was a manager, that bus would not have been stopping. But I think he did the right thing, but what didn't want to risk doing is stopping the Christmas night party and having a hangover from that and having boys moaning about that week on end. Just been beaten. Can't change that. You know, let them go out and I'll deal with them on you know, the Monday or Tuesday, um, which he did. He actually brought in a guy. Um, I can't remember the guy's name, but the specialist from the speech to us, and I remember the guy saying to us, and I cannot believe you went out on a Christmas night out when you got beat by whatever by Morecambe. So, uh, yeah, it was it was a learning curve for us all as players, um, but, you know, it's probably six. Superb, yeah. So we had a few audio issues during that, mainly due to the the device that Marvin was using. He came into the chat late and we didn't have much time to sort it, but... Honestly, watch it again. I tried to mute his microphone and do the things that uh, prevent the audio feedback issues. And I think we just about got around it. But his interview was really interesting. And it was so good um, to be joined there by Jeff. And also on the show, we had Michael Dunn as well, who asked his questions too. So coming up on Back of the Net, we've still got to hear from Mark Pugh and some of his great stories uh, of being a Bournemouth player. And uh, I love some of the tales about the championship too. But first, Trevor Watkins, he became chairman in the early 90, well, no, it was early 1996, wasn't it? And he said he'd lend his services in legal capacity to the club if ever they needed him, just give him a call. When he was called... Well, he was met with the worst financial position we'd been in for, for, for quite a lot of time. This is what happened. So can you um, explain how, how you turned from the average man on the terrace to someone that ultimately threw themselves headfirst in this you know, financial nightmare that the cherries were in? Well, I, was, I probably was never really cut out to be a lawyer. I, wasn't, I was going to be an English teacher and then for one reason or another, I was at Bournemouth School. And I ended up um, doing an extra year to, to try and go and do law at university, which I ended up doing. And to be honest, I was working in the city, but my dad had taken me to watch the Cherries February 74. I think we played Warsaw, which I think we won 1-0. And I just carried on going. I went with my mates and from school. We used to play football, not very well, but used to love it. And it really became part of life. So my dad and I used to keep on going. And by the time... We got to 97. We were sitting in the main stand. We used to stand on the away end because it's what we could afford at the time. But yeah, working in the city, my goodness, I could afford a season ticket in the centre of the stand. So um, high times sitting in that old wooden <laughs> stand before it was falling down and condemned. Um, Terry, Terry Lovell, the commercial director at the time. And, you know, as a vice president, we used to get a cup of tea and biscuits at half time in the uh, very luxurious under the stand um, sort of director's lounge area and I just said to him you know by the way I work in the city I'm a lifetime supporter if I can do anything to help I'd love to he said well, right right well I'll think about it let me I'll let you know and then the news in the daily echo because of those times we rely right on that every day in print form to see what was going on unless you're doing teletext and, and, and ringing the, the ringing the premium number to see what was going on um and he hadn't rung me, and yet the news was getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, I think it was the Rotherham game, Matty Holland had been playing in, that I'd made this offer. And about eight, nine days later, I rang him again and said, oh, look, is there any news? And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why don't you come to a meeting tomorrow night, which is Tuesday? And I said, all right. And he said, look, come to 
uh, it was this really dodgy hotel in Niverton Road in, in Bournemouth. <laughs> And it was lashing it down with rain. I went down there and eventually a guy called Roy Pack came out, Australian guy. And he said, I'm here to represent the two remaining directors, a chap called Brian Willis. He's a lovely guy, um, still goes to games. He often sits behind me at the games. And a chap called Norman Hayward, who used to be chairman. And they owed, well, the club owed a lot of money to the bank. Um, and I said, well, look, we work with the bank. Maybe I can help. And they came in the next day to see me in my law firm in London. We spoke to the bank. The bank wasn't interested unless they put up more money. And then two days later, the bank shut the club on a Friday morning. Well, all fairly dramatic then. I mean, who do you think was responsible that it, that it ended up in such a parlous state at that time? Oh, I don't know. It's really hard. I mean, I don't think anybody ever intends to take over a football club and then finally haven't got the money. I think that... Um, too many circumstances came together. At that time, club was very reliant on selling players. Norman Hayward had done a very good job, actually, in prior years of doing that, developing talent, selling them on. And the club had just reached its ultimate negative position. You know, many teams, particularly lower league teams, still rely on people to put money in. And all the directors, a guy called Colin Legg, who used to own the uh, golf course over at Dusbury, he'd put a stack of money in. Um, Jeffrey Haywood, absolutely wonderful man, had put a stack of money in. And they'd hit the, hit the buffers. And they were borrowing money at exorbitant rates from places in outfits in Monaco. And the bank had had enough. So it shut the door. And I'd gone to work that Friday, got home that Friday night. There was a message on my answer phone. No such things as mobiles then. Um, <laughs> And it was from this Australian guy, Royston Pack, saying the club's been shut. Will you come to a meeting next morning? I could have said yes. I could have said no. I said I'd go. Went to a meeting with him, Arthur Anderson, who were appointed as receivers. Uh, Brian was there, Brian Willis, Norman. And they were all arguing because basically the league had said, put some money up or you're going to be shut down completely. You're not going to play any more games. The team were playing away at Bristol City that afternoon which they won 1-0, yeah. Ian Cox scored. And um, ultimately, they looked at me and they said, well, you said you wanted to help. <laughs> you you, ra you raised the money. <laughs> I was like, yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Six, wanted 650000 the league within wow. five days to show that we could survive the season. You know, bearing in mind that was probably oh, more than 30% of the club's annual turnover. So, I mean, at that point, were you... Were you provided access to look at the finances and you know check the numbers no. pretty forensically? I mean, but no. surely with that figure in mind, you know, given the attendances at the time, you must have been thinking, okay, this is going to be a struggle. No, I didn't actually. The weird thing was, I kind of turned up. I think I'd cycled up there uh, on the Saturday morning, so I was playing football that afternoon, and I kind of listened. And the guys from Arthur Anderson were saying, well, we're not putting money in. The bank's not putting money in. The director said, well, we're not putting any money in. And they said, well, you, you know, you do it. You said you wanted it out. And I just, by luck, when I'd had my year out from school and university, because I decided I wanted to do law, not English, so I had to stay out for a year and try to go to, to Oxford, I'd ended up working for the BBC voluntarily um, with a guy called Richard Williams, because his, te his teacher at Porchester School had um, said, let's put a programme on four or five nights a week with a guy called Nick Girdler um, oh, yeah. to, do, to do something else. It was what it was called. And I'd gone on there and I was the person who went out and interviewed people to uh, do bits and pieces for the programme. So pop stars and celebrities that came into the area. And by this time, 12 years on, Richard was the sports editor for Radio Solon. So I rang him. He said, well, come on the show. You know, you know what you to do. Go to the studio at the Bic. I'll interview you. So I got this interview where he was going, this is Trevor Watkins. He knows what's going on at Bournemouth. Trevor, what do we need to do? Oh, we need to raise all this money. Mm. And people started ringing him. And so, I mean, was it at that point that you thought that you need to, because obviously you could have gone to, you know, maybe some investors or whatever, but your thought was to, you know, let's try to involve the community somehow. Oh, I didn't know anything about it at that stage. I mean, at the end of the day, I was a lawyer working in London who just so happened to follow AFC Bournemouth. I was a, a litigation lawyer, nothing to do with football, nothing to do with corporate rescues, nothing to do with finance. 
it just seemed like, uh, uh, you know, this is my club. This is the team I'd watched all my life. Um, and I offered to help. And then things began to develop. Um, the Australian guy that the two directors had brought in, he was quite clearly wanting to control the process. It was really a war between them and the bank, um, a war that went on for many, many years. And I didn't know that at the time, really. I mean, I'd got some inkling of it. But the next day, this Australian guy called me in to his hotel uh, in Niverton Road, made very clear he was going to be in control, but wanted there to be a public me uh, not, uh, meeting at the club on the Sunday night, which I went to, and Mel Machen came, and Matty Holland, um, uh, and a number of the councillors, a number of supporters. And that was probably the pivotal moment, because... One of the councillors said, well, why don't you have a public meeting Tuesday night? And I said, well, I'm very happy to do that, but I need some help. And four or five supporters, a chap called Ken Dando, a guy called Andrew Kay, um, and many others volunteered. Um, they, Andy Noonan, uh, they would all become pivotal in the future of the club. And at that point, I cottoned on that there was going to be more of a fight between the directors and the bank. And I said, fine, well, I'm prepared to do this if it's a public thing, it's independent, it's for the supporters, it's for the town, it's for the community. That's when it really started. And I remember Terry Lovell at the club was great. He got a press release out for us on Monday. The council said use the Winter Gardens. Sadly, no longer anymore, is it, anymore? Yeah, Tuesday night. Right. I took the day off work. We had, we had a meeting that Monday night of six of us, Andrew Kay, Ken Dando, Andy Noon and others all of whom, or those who are still with us, still watch the club. And I think from that moment on, every night for five, six months, we met. We did our work. We got together at six o'clock. We finished at midnight, sometimes one in the morning. I would invariably go to bed, get up and go to London the next day and then come back because I was way too junior in my law firm at that point to be able to work from home. Um, how times change. Um, <laughs> no no COVID-19 yeah. then. Um and we just thought we did. And it was a wing and a prayer, literally. And we got caught up in a real skirmish, a bum fight between the directors and the bank. We got caught up in huge amounts of uh, disagreements between different people that wanted different things to the club. But we just grew and grew. And, you know, uh, within, a, within a matter of days, decided maybe it was worth trying to save it and buy it for the fans, which is what happened in the end. That was fantastic. I mean, at what point did they actually give up and, and decide they weren't going to fight you? They didn't. It went on for years. We were threatened for years and years and years after the takeover. Um, and as many different, um, everybody's entitled to a different opinion, obviously, in terms of how they interpret things. What really surprised me was the, um, you know, the, the way in which that played out. Um, we we were only ever trying to save the club, but we were we were we were on the receiving end of quite a number of threats for quite some time about being caught up in litigation, threatened personally because we tried to save or we had saved the club. Um, some people believed it shouldn't have gone that way; it should have gone another way. And um, unfortunately, mm -hmm. I think the supporters, as a group, got 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 in the way to a degree. And it and it was tough to be honest. It was, you know, there's some very very good people. People like Brian Willis, um, people like Jeffrey Hayward, Peter Hayward, people like Peter Aldersley, who still go every week. John still goes every week. Uh, John Saunders, who still goes every week. Uh, Andrew Kay, who goes whenever he can. Um, all these people, um, Peter Phillips, who became chairman later on, um, they all played their part <coughs> in keeping the club alive. So... There were thousands that turned out at the Winter Gardens. Did you expect that kind of turnout? No, not in a million years. It was it was unbelievable. And I think we raised about £35,000 that night. I mean, what did you do with the money that night? Put it in buckets and, and took, it, <laughs> took, it out to, took it out to the New Forest and hid it. Um, really? really? Our, tactical, our tactical planning, a bit like the government these days. You never wow. quite know exactly how to deal with all the circumstances. And to be fair, we didn't, we, there's a lot of things we didn't get right. We, we were making up as we went along. Um, and that was one of them. Crikey, it's 11 o'clock at night. We've got bucket loads of cash. 
where do we do? What do we do with it? So a couple of the guys slept out in the new forest um, looking after the money. You know, it's it was hand to mouth. But, you know, the next morning, Jeffrey Hayward rang and said, I'll give you £100,000. Wow. Whoa. You know, Harry Redknapp rang up. You know, he, um, he eventually lent us some money in the end. Mm. Um, but a lot of people put a lot of faith in that supporter group. I mean, many people probably remember Ken Dando. Yes. Sadly died a few years after the rescue happened. Um, and, you know, it's a terrific picture of him, Andrew Kay, Steve Fletcher, Eddie Howe, myself, on the south end, shaking a bottle of champagne, because that's what the Daily Echo said yeah. to do. Um, and it's a brilliant picture of us. I mean, that just goes down in memory. And I think that and the, the huge ask of the town and what everybody did, um, you know, I don't think any of us probably realised how open we'd suddenly be to scrutiny and criticism and hassle and so on. But nobody ever backed away. And these people, everybody did it for nothing. And I think that's incredible. And the fact they will still go and watch the club. And, you know, different chairmen subsequently have had their views, had their disagreements over supporters rescuing the club. Uh, and ultimately, had we not done it, the club would probably have survived in some shape or form, one way or another. Um, but, you know, we I, I, I firmly believe we did our best. It was 23 years ago. And... Um, we we worked incredibly hard and we had some great support from across the fan base. Yeah, brilliant stuff. Great to have Trevor on. And uh, yeah, do watch that again. This is Tommy Alfick and you're listening to Back of the Net. So on to Mark Pugh then. Uh, what a legend. What a guy he was. And some of the stuff we were talking about, quality, I advise you, I implore you, do watch again on YouTube, youtube.com slash AFCB podcast. Uh, it was myself, Jeff Hayward, and Alex Deutsch that managed to chat to him. It was uh, over one hour, 20 minutes in the end. And here were some nuggets from that brilliant Sunday evening. But let's wind back to your time pre Cherries. And can you sort of tell us about your football as a youth and how you ended up at Dean Court? Yes, uh, it's, it was a hell of a journey, really. Um, I spent um, two years with Burnley as a YT, uh, a lot of ups and downs. Um, from 16 to 18, I was playing as a striker, as, uh, scoring a lot of goals. I was I was a I was a key performer in the youth team and reserves. Um, and it got to 18. I haven't really had you know much much football, much training with the first team. Um, I was doing really well on the stand tournament at the time. He was. Um, he was a real admirer of me. I was on the bench at Villa Park at 16 in, in a Carling Cup, it was back in the day, in a Carling Cup game. Um, and then a change of manager. Um, looking back, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. He basically said I wasn't good enough um, and, you know, he, he released me. But looking back, it made me such a stronger character. Um, it gave me that kick up the backside to, you know, look, look at myself in the mirror and say, look, I really need to uh, make something of this now. I went to Bury. Um, they gave me a year contract. I played 40-plus league games in League Two um, with them. Um, I had a really good year. Um, and then they offered me a contract um, at Butch Shrewsbury Town. They'd moved into a new stadium at the time. They came in and offered me a three-year contract. So I thought, great opportunity, moving away from, you know, with my wife. Um, and um, we thought, we'll, we'll have a real good go at this. And after two years, another change of manager um, told me it wasn't good enough. Uh, so, yeah, it seems to be a regular theme at the minute. Um, I was actually on my honeymoon um, in my third season and I got a phone call to say I was, I was getting paid up. Um, you know, I wasn't needing any more. So that was like, wow, come on. Um, and then after two days, my agent called me saying Hereford were interested in taking me. Um, so... This was when I really started to take it seriously. I was like, look, I need to make something of this now. I, it's all I ever dreamt about um, as a young boy. I wanted to be a professional footballer, and that was my aim. And that season, I scored three goals against Bournemouth, two in the home fixture, and one at Dean Court. And uh, 
<laughs> the man himself, Eddie Ira, he dis- decided to take a punt on me and the rest is history. Was that your plan, Mark? Did you aim to score lots of goals to impress Eddie and get that dream move to Bournemouth? <laughs> it seems that way, yeah. Um, I mean, he's just he's just got an incredible way with players. And um, the first day I met him, I mean, I drove down to Bournemouth and uh, we were saying to ourselves, wow, this is a long way. Because originally from being up north, it, it took us six and a half hours. But we met him. We went for a lovely meal in Prezzo. They like to, uh, <laughs> they treat us, treat us to a prezzo, and we instantly connected. Um, not just on a personal level, his philosophy, the way he wanted to play. Um, it was just, it was just a match made in heaven, and um, we grew from strength to strength. Um, our relationship, uh, not only on the field but off the field, is um, it's still amazing now. Mm, good stuff, Alex. Do you remember uh, his goal? against us because I, I must admit I can't it was a long time ago wasn't it um, <laughs> yeah. I, I feel if I remember rightly I, I could be wrong I, I feel like it, you went you, you nutmegged the keeper but I'm not it was a very long time ago. <laughs> you know what I always have a joke because I'm good friends with Shrangelal actually he uh I always joke with him saying you got me my move to form a few days <laughs> 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 I got played uh, played in behind defence, and he came charging out, and uh, he tried smashing me. I nutmegged him, and had a free tap in the goal. So, um, no, yeah, that, good memory, by the way. Yeah, it's good to know that you remember it. That's what uh, Clark asked us, and also um, Neil Dawson. We were briefly talking about uh, the early stages of Eddie. Do you think that performance helped you seal the deal? Uh, yeah, because I know um, the the scout Des Taylor who was watching me at the time. Um, he came to watch me that evening, um, and I think he watched me on seven or eight other occasions. He uh, he still claims to this day that he got me my move to Bournemouth. He was scouting me, and uh, he says I've seen you. Uh, you had a nightmare one game, but I told Eddie how you still got ability. So, <laughs> but um, no, I, I I think it did play a massive part because at the end of the day, you. You only get certain opportunities in football. You can be, you can have a really poor four or five games, and then the right person can be watching you the next game. Um, you can play really well, score two goals, and get your move from that. That's what it's all about. I mean, um, you can have all the the talent in your world, the ability, but if you don't perform on the right stage, then you're not going to, you know, get the move you deserve. And did you think that the move? might not happen because it went to a tribunal and I think didn't Jeff Mostyn describe it as uh, an excessive £100,000 fee at the time <laughs> yeah he was absolutely chewing actually uh, he thought I was an absolute rip off uh, <laughs> no, you know what we, I went to the tribunal with Jeff uh, we went on the train together all I can say is what a guy he has done so much for that football club and I'm literally I, can't, I haven't got enough words I, I probably We've only got an hour, an hour and a bit on here. I probably need a bit longer. So we went on this incredible journey, uh, train journey to London, had a load of banter. Um, you know, he found out how much it was and he was absolutely shell-shocked. So he, Jeff being Jeff, the only thing he could do was uh, take me to Selfridges and uh, buy me a lunch in there. And uh, he was sat there with a little glass of wine. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, but no, he's, he was—he did say it was excessive, but no, um, you know, hopefully I've um, I've justified that fee. I think, think the chair, I think it might have been one of the best hundred thousand pounds we've ever spent. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, right from the start, you were really popular with the fans, um, and it was quite clear that all the fans absolutely loved you. Um, but how quickly did you realise that we were actually singing "Pew"? Rather than you know, <laughs> booing you, I thought I think I scored my first goal against Peterborough, and they started booing. And I was like, <laughs> what's going on here? I scored a goal, but uh, no. I, um, basically, it took me a couple of games to realise that. But no, I, <laughs> it's still spine tingling now. I mean, especially when I when the show first started and you hear the Bolton commentary and obviously people chanting your name. That's what you live for as a footballer. You want to put smile, smiles on fans' faces and just just make them happy. You, as long as you're going out on that football field, giving your all, win, lose, or draw, um, that's all you can ever do. I mean, me, losing's the most frustrating thing in football, but I always say if you lose a game, it's you're not a loser. It is... 
an opportunity for you to grow as a person and you know go home spend time with your family yeah forget about it on the saturday night but once monday comes around analyze your performance and just work out where you've gone wrong to be better the following week and as long as you're giving everything for the cause and you know then that's all the fans want playing under Eddie, you uh, you had quite a prolific start to that season in div 1 mark and the, the team was playing well but how quickly did you become aware of the speculation around Eddie and, and how difficult was it to play with that speculation going on? Yeah, I was absolutely devastated when he left. Um, devastated because um, I signed for Bournemouth for Eddie Howe, um, you know, and um, I, he got the best out of me as a player. Um, and yeah, it was tough to take at the time and it took us a real while to get going again. I think we were... Um, I think we were sitting in our second season once he'd left. I think we were sitting about 19th in League One at the time. And then he came back and uh, we just went on an incredible run again to get promoted that season. Um, and being completely honest, I didn't know what was happening with my future because I just I wasn't as happy. Uh, Bradders was incredible. Bradders was brilliant. Um, and um, Brooksy and Groves, he came in. They'd done a really good job. And... Uh, I think people underestimate the signings he made. He made some great signings, but they didn't make the team gel like the gaffer did, Eddie. He just, his attention to detail is absolutely phenomenal. He, he, he deserves all the plaudits he gets because he works tirelessly behind the scenes. I don't, I don't think, people know he works hard, but he's on another level. And not only him, his coaching staff, JT, Perchy, Tinners, um, you know, they're all absolutely brilliant. And that's why the club, along with obviously all the hard work everyone puts in and the players have done an incredible job there, um, it's a lot of it is down to him and his, his coaching staff. It's interesting because uh, when Bradbury, you know, took, obviously it was devastating for us Bournemouth fans when Eddie left and we, we we were just not sure whether Lee Bradbury would be up to it. But for the first 10 games, at least, we did all right and we were unbeaten. But then our season soon unraveled a bit and we, uh, we were picking up a few sort of bad results. But in the end, we managed to hold on to the sixth place spot. Can you enlighten us on the differences between Bradbury's management style compared to Eddie's or was he very much in the Eddie mould? I think um, I think Bradders was was really good to be honest. He was he was excellent, but Eddie's shoes are, are so big to fill. Um, he's he's been tooted as like an England manager, and rightly so. He's absolutely incredible. And um, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> you can't pinpoint where it was going wrong. I think it was just overall. Um, I think the attention to detail in training and the hours uh, the gaffer Eddie spent on the training ground and his coaching staff with his players, he wanted to develop players and he um, he's on another level. He's on. It's nothing against anyone, Bradders, Grovesy, Brooksy who came in because they were very good, but Eddie Howe is on another level. How close did you come to leaving when Eddie left? Because uh, obviously Marvin Bartley went with him to Burnley. Feeney and Robinson also left. So were you were you thinking, you know, I might I might go too? No, I mean, at, at the end of the day, I was enjoying my football. I was I was playing some really good football, um, and you know, sometimes players maybe jump a little too soon. Where I am really proving myself for a full season at League One when the gaffer went. Yeah, I'd had a really good start and I was scoring goals for fun. I was flying. And I was, uh, when he moved to Burnley, being a Burnley fan, um, I thought he was going to take me with him. And part of me was devastated at the time because I really did want that move to Burnley and I wanted to go with Eddie Howe. Um, and, <laughs> and, you know, I'm a firm believer that everything happens for a reason. And, there was a reason for me not going to Burnley. I think he signed another winger at the time instead of me. Um, and the reason was to, to be on this incredible journey with Bournemouth, um, make the incredible friends I've, I've made um, at the club, um, you know, have a great relationship with the fans, be successful, get into the Premier League with Bournemouth. And there was unfinished business there. And it was just him coming back. I think it spurred everyone on to make that final push. Obviously, there was a quite a, 
a period where um, there was a contract on the table and, and you, you continued to play with such professionalism and you carried yourself so brilliantly the whole time. Um, but when, when Howe came back, you, um, I mean, pretty quickly decided mm. that, you know, you were, you were going to stay. What was it about Howe returning that made you sign and, and, and commit? Um, just his ambition. I mean, I'm an, ambi- I'm an ambitious person. I believe still to this day that I'm going to play in the Premier League again. Um, and Eddie, you know, instilled that self-confidence and belief in his players. Um, you knew what direction he wanted to push in, the style of play he wanted to play suited me down to the ground. He wanted me and Chaz, we just, we had the best understanding and relationship. You know, I think there's been in the Championship uh, not being too biased for anything, but uh, uh, I enjoyed playing with Chaz every week. Um, I think that team, it just clicked absolutely. Like, it must have been a pleasure to watch as a, as a football fan. Because really was, yeah. it, it was, uh, it was so enjoyable to play in and um, seeing the games back, seeing the goals we used to score. Um, but yeah, um, just the sessions he put on. It was so enjoyable and it brought out the best of you on, on a field on a Saturday. You implemented them sessions and you, you basically, say you were playing Birmingham, you'd know their strengths, weaknesses and you'd know how to cut them open and we did that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, no, I've, I've, like I say, I've not enough time to say all the words I've got to say about um, the gaffer Jason, his coaching staff. Um, it's, he he brought life back to the football club, along with a lot of hard workers behind the scenes. Because I think people forget about you know the amount of people that put their hands in the pockets to keep the club club alive. And you know me personally, I'm I'm grateful for everyone that grateful to everyone that has helped this football club achieve their dream. Brilliant. Yeah, so f- had a message. Oh, sorry. Yeah, Joe, I was about to say, Jeff, just before we move on to that, um, your yeah. next point, um, because I know you want to mention a certain person that Pewie proved wrong, don't you? Um, we had a message from AFC Beer who said that he you know, he was convinced that you were off following what he thought was an extended <coughs> hand clap after the Huddersfield game um, at their place. And obviously he's so glad, like we all are, that you stay. But also he sent a message to say, your old head teacher, Mike Brennan, sends his regards. He has watched your career with great interest. Is that a oh, name you remember? Yeah, I remember him really well. I mean, me and my wife went to the same school and uh, we loved uh, Mr. Brennan, as we called him back, um, Mm. back in the day. And uh, now that's really touching, actually, to hear that people, especially teachers from a school, are still watching my career closely. Um, And he was such an amazing guy. Um, He was a a great head teacher and uh, we loved him to bits. That's really nice to hear. Mark Pugh. What a legend. Absolute top stuff to have him on the podcast. And uh, yeah, really, really great to relive some stories. And we've got more on YouTube. If you haven't subscribed, do so. You know the address. I keep on talking about it every two minutes. Uh, Next Sunday, we've got another AFC Bournemouth legend from the Pewey era as well. So thank you very much for tuning into this podcast. And once again, a shout out to Living Home Tech, who are professionals in the design and installation of cinemas, networks, lighting, security systems, and a lot more. Visit their website at livinghometech.co.uk. Thanks very much for tuning in to Back of the Net. We'll see you on the next podcast, and that's going to be in a few weeks' time, where we'll wrap up some more of our extended YouTube interviews. So take care. And we'll see you soon. You've been listening to Back of the Net, the AFC Bournemouth podcast. Richie. Beyond Walker. Pew. Pew! That'll do it! That will do it! Pew for Bournemouth! The roof of the gold sand! is raised. Everyone here knows what that could mean to this
Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. Eighteen plus.